Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Oh my goodness. Good morning, everybody. So good to be with you. Uh, I, this is a kind of a special weekend for me. Um, first, because uh, my son is here who lives in Denver, and so I get to visit him on top of being with all of you wonderful people. So, uh, yeah, I am super happy about that. And then, uh, you know, I've been a writer and speaker for a long time. And for 20 of those years, the person who's managed all of my travel and schedule and make sure that I don't say yes to too many things is Lacey Scott, who's here. And uh, Lacey and I have worked together for over 20 years, um, but I think this is the third or fourth time that we've ever met in person. Uh, and, and we don't even use Zoom. We just use email we, for almost all of our communication. So uh, it worked out that she could be here. So it's really nice to meet the person I've been working with. <laughs> be with Lacey, who has been uh, just a delight, and her friend Amy, who I realized I met also too many years ago to count. And, uh, and Michael, just uh, being here with you and this congregation is, is a great honor. And I just feel you are, uh, you are part of something that's not only, I trust, really important in your own life, but I hope maybe by the end of this session, you'll have a sense of how important it is uh, in something bigger that maybe is happening in the world. Um, this is one of those Sundays, if you can find one of those Bibles that's near you, um, that it would actually, I think you'll want to follow along because we're going to look at kind of a long story. Some of you may be familiar with this story. I'm going to work from the assumption that you're not familiar with it. And we're just going to kind of live into this story a little bit, imagine this story unfolding. And um, by way of background, here's all that I want to say. I think we all know that uh, almost every institution in society is conflicted and struggling right now. Um, for example, in our political life, one thing that, poli that, that Democrats and Republicans agree on, maybe the only thing, is that things aren't working very well. Uh, uh, in, in our educational lives, uh, we're struggling with figuring out how do we keep schools going uh, if more pandemics come. Uh, in, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out 
in higher education, college has become so necessary for so much of our economy that its value has gone up so high that people have to get huge amounts of debt to afford it. And it sort of eats away at some of the advantages that it's supposed to provide. I mean, you just go, in our economic system, we're producing incredible amounts of wealth that gets funneled to a smaller and smaller number of people. And while other people are struggling to think, how could I ever afford a home or a car or health insurance? And, and so we're just, you just look at different areas of life and it feels like a world that maybe was working somewhat okay in the past, uh, the wheels seem to be falling off. And that's true in the world of religion too. Some of you know my most recent book is called Do I Stay Christian? And I'm grappling with that question because the word Christian has come to mean so many opposite things that people think, if I call myself a Christian, I don't want people to think I support that, you know? And so here we are at this time of instability. And um, something has been kind of brewing in me in recent years. As Michael said, when you start asking questions, uh, it can be a little bit scary, but it can also, one question leads to another, leads to another, and sometimes you find a place where, you, you find yourself at a place where you see things differently. And in recent years, when I think about my life as a Christian, uh, I've been coming to see Jesus differently. Um, and one of the ways I've been coming to see Jesus, this is not in any creed or anything like that, although it's not opposed to any you know, ancient creeds or doctrines, but I've been coming to see Jesus as a movement leader, as someone who's trying to start a movement. Some years ago, I started reading about social movement theory. And in social movement theory, you find out there are certain different theorists have different numbers of characteristics of social movements. And when I took the characteristics of social movements and social movement leaders, and I went back to the New Testament and I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'll just tell you, uh, Jesus looked absolutely brilliant. He, and what he was doing made sense in all new kinds of ways. And the same, uh, then when I moved from Jesus's life into the rest of the New Testament, one of the really big figures in the New Testament is a fellow named Paul. If you study Paul as a movement leader, what he's doing makes huge amounts of sense. And so what I'd like us to do is look at a story from the life of Paul and imagine him continuing a social and spiritual movement Begun, begun by Jesus. Now, when you think of movements, you might think of Black Lives Matter movement, Me Too movement, environmental movement, civil rights movement, uh, uh, the, the uh, locally grown food movement. There's all kinds of movements that in our lifetime we've watched develop and grow and try to bring change into the world. So that's what I'd like us to think about. So we're going to be looking at a, a passage in the book of Acts chapter 16 and in the Bible that you have somewhere nearby you, I hope it's page 771. And uh, we're going to start uh, in chapter 16, verse 11. And all I need to tell you is Paul is traveling with a group of people, uh, his a little team of people, Apparently, Luke is one of them because he tells the story. The author of this uh, document tells the story, you know, like as an eyewitness. 
And um, there's a fellow named Silas and other people we don't know. And so I'm just going to pick up in the story. Now, remember, if it were today, we'd be talking about somebody taking off from DIA and traveling to ORD and then going to ATL and then, you, you know what I mean? But here, it's different names that are unfamiliar to you, but all you have to understand is these are cities scattered around the Mediterranean. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis, and from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, that little phrase, a Roman colony, is quite significant, because if you know how the book of Acts is structured, it begins in Jerusalem. If we were to turn, sort of imagine, a big map of the Mediterranean. So imagine the Mediterranean going all around here. And let's imagine Jerusalem and Israel is down here. This is where Jesus had been crucified. And this is sort of the, and, and Jesus had only ever lived in a very small area, uh, uh, it, it, you know, down here uh, at this part of the map. And what Paul has been doing is traveling from city to city all along the Mediterranean coast. And we know that he's going to end up in Rome, where he's eventually, after the book of Acts ends, going to be killed, is our, our best understanding. And, and so he, the, the book of Acts starts here and ends up in the capital of the whole Roman Empire. And now we're at about the halfway point. And for the first time, Paul is going to be in a Roman colony. The Roman Empire controls everything, and he's moving toward the center of power of the Roman Empire, and he's now in a colony. So this is the first time he's in, like, under the Roman system fully. So that's a little tiny detail in the story, but as we read the story, I think you'll see why in movement theory uh, uh, awareness, it's, it's a significant thing. Um, and so he says, um, we stayed there several days, and on the Sabbath we went outside the city to the river, outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. I, I have no idea why they expected to find a place of prayer, but I just want you to notice uh, a couple of interesting details. We're not going to the temple, we're not going to the synagogue, we're not going to the religious uh, sort of architecture made by human beings. We're going outside the city gate and we're going to go down by the riverside, a natural place where we assume some people have gathered for prayer. What religion were they? We don't even know. But there's some kinds of people who have spiritual longings and they're at a place of prayer and this is where Paul and his little entourage go. Now, could this be because in Rome, uh, you know, now that we're in a Roman colony, there's going to be a lot more strictness about following the gods of the Roman Empire. Uh, that could be inside the city, you can only go to a Roman Empire-sanctioned religious place. So we've got to go outside the sanctioned religious structures, outside of town, to a natural place where people can meet outside the scrutiny of the authorities. And so this is sort of some edgy religion that's happening, some edgy spirituality that's happening. And when they get to this riverside place, um, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. 
Now, if you know much about the Roman Empire, you know that in the Roman Empire, it was a patriarchy. It was led by men. I know it's hard to imagine a world where men dominate and lead. <laughs> it's hard to imagine a world where men make decisions that control the lives of women, and women have very little you know, say in that. I know it's hard to imagine a world where, uh, where uh, everybody assumes that men are rational, And, and women, if they have minds, they're not as, you know. By the way, you may not know this, but Plato taught that women could be prophets, but they couldn't be teachers. Because to be a prophet, all you need is a mouth so that the oracles can speak through you. To be a teacher, you actually have to have a rational mind. I, I, I'm just telling you, one of our greatest philosophers taught this, right? So this is the world, and now here's a group of women outside the city gates in the natural architecture of a riverside, and there's a group of women who've gathered there, and one of these listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She's not identified as Mrs. Anything. She's an independently wealthy woman, a businesswoman. She was a worshiper of God. What religion? I have no idea. But, a court, but Luke, who writes this, sees this woman as a woman who has a vital spiritual life. He sees her spirituality. She's a worshiper of God. Um, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message when she and the members of her household were baptized. Isn't it interesting? It's her household. When they were baptized, she invited us to her home. See, the us there tells you Luke was part of this entourage. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. I mean, you sort of get a feeling this is a powerful woman, you know. You're staying at my house if you're here, you know. And so they're there. Uh, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met. So we're heading our way out there. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, look, I'm sure we'll all have different opinions on this. Some of us will see she had a spirit, and you'll think, you know, this is like a demon or something. You know, I mean, could be. Um, some of us might look at this and say, look, that language of spirit is vague and ambiguous language. We might say she had a knack. Or she had a side hustle. Or she had a, uh, you know, she had a 900 number. You know, that kind of a thing. Um, and, and, but she's a slave and she's a woman. In the Roman Empire, it's a super stratified social class system. At the bottom are slaves. And at the bottom of the slave economy are women slaves. So in a sense, we're in the colony of the Roman Empire. And we've started with women uh, outside the city, and now we're having an encounter with the most marginalized segment of society, the most powerless segment of society, a slave woman. And, um, and then it adds, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Do, do you start to get a feel for how this works? She's a slave. She's got this knack, and her slave owners are making big money on her knack. Now, she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting. So as they're walking through the city to leave the city to go to the river, day after day, when she has her little roadside stand, 
where she does fortune telling for people, she sees these guys walking by and she starts shouting, these men are servants of the, by the way, I should tell you, uh, whoever in this translation, whoever chose this translation, decided to call her a slave and these guys servants. It's actually the same word. Uh, so let's try this. These men are slaves of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. These men are slaves of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Do you start to feel their I mean, they're slaves. There's something going on there, right? Um, uh, they're in this. They're uh, they're like me, but they're not slaved to these men who are exploiting me and making a lot of money, and I get no profit sharing. Um, these men and these men work for the Most High God. Now, just remember, we're in a Roman colony. There's a Roman pantheon, and what she is saying. A fortune teller who has a knack for seeing things, she's saying, these men work for the God who is above this Roman pantheon of gods. And this Roman pantheon, by the way, all theology is political. So this group of, this pantheon of Roman gods justify the slave system that I'm part of, this woman is saying. Our Roman gods are implying. Our Roman gods are happy with the situation where I'm exploited at the bottom of the pyramid and these men are making money off of me. And, and, but these men here, they're serving a God who's above all of that and they will show you the way to be saved. Now, all of you have a religious background. Who, uh, who, all of you who have a religious background, maybe you grew up hearing the word saved. Uh, and, and that was a big word in your, uh, words like saved and salvation. It was in my background. And in the background I grew up with, we knew what saved meant. Saved meant you're going to go to heaven when you die as opposed to New Jersey or uh, whatever. <laughs> you're, you're going to go to heaven when you die uh, to a good place as opposed to a really bad place. And, and we had all kinds of theology. We had th theories of what that all meant. Let me ask you, honestly, I'm just asking you, do you think a Roman slave girl would have any of those ideas, right? What would the word mean for her? I'm a slave. These men are slaves of the Most High God. They will show you the way to be. What would saved mean? Just let that sit for a minute because we're going to find that word pop up again in a couple minutes. Um, when, uh, and so then... Uh, she does this day after day. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, I have no idea what Luke means by saying Paul was annoyed. Was it like, this woman is obviously very brilliant. She understands the socioeconomic and political interactions of the Roman pantheon of gods and a slave economy. And, and she sees that we're here with a, a, a different liberating message. She is so brilliant. I am so ticked off at this whole stinking system that I'm going to put an end to this right now. Is that what the annoyed is? Or, I mean, if, depending on your opinion of Paul, you could think Paul's thinking, 
Look, I'm here on a holy mission. I do not need Roman slave girls as my PR department. I wish you would just be quiet. Let's, you know, I don't know which it is. But, um, uh, but he says, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, here's one other little thing. When you see the word Christ, most of us think that was Jesus' last name. But it wasn't. The word Christ is a title, and the title, so we could have a long discussion about this. It came to mean something different and very interesting in later Christian theology and history, but in the Gospels, the word Christ means liberating king, the one who's coming to liberate. Jesus, in the name of Jesus, the liberating king, I tell you to come out of her, the knack, the spirit, the ability leaves her. The jig is up on her as a fortune teller uh, making money within this uh, Roman system. Uh, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now, I know it's very hard to imagine authorities who are in service of business interests. But just believe me that in ancient times, they were very closely tied together. And so they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, so interesting, Michael was just telling me this morning about the history of this building as originally being a synagogue 100 years ago. And just an amazing history. And, and I think it's a special. And, and he was telling me that they made, this was the original part of the building, and they made this part of the building look like a church because of anti-Semitism. They wanted it to be a house of worship that didn't stand out too much so that it wouldn't attract attention. Does that all sound familiar today? I mean, this resurgence of anti-Semitism. If you've read my most recent book, the first chapter of the book, I talk about the history of Christian anti-Semitism. And can I tell you, it is, it is far worse than you can imagine. And there are resurgences of it that are going on in our world today. And, and, and there was an anti-Semitism way back in the Roman Empire. And you might say, why? Why would there be this persistent anti-Semitism? Well, one reason is because the Jews, the story they told about themselves was that we believe in a God who liberates slaves from captivity. Let that sink in. The, the, the Genesis story, which is found in the book of Exodus, of the Jewish people, is that God heard the groans of the Hebrew children under oppression by the Egyptians, and God worked to liberate them. Can you see why a slave-holding economy would be against someone who comes along, a group of people who come along and say, the highest God is not for this economy. The highest God cares about the well-being of the people at the bottom of the pyramid. And so what these, so you can see the Roman Empire would be nervous. In fact, they kept having the Jews refusing to go along with the Roman program. And, um, and so they, and just in this beautiful space with its history as a synagogue, to realize that what was going on there was they were inciting anti-Semitism against 
Paul and his friends, all of whom were Jews. They're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept their practice. What they're doing is unpatriotic and it is wrong by our cultural customs. What are our cultural customs that are being violated? Believing that slaves are important. Believing that women slaves are important. Believing that the dignity of a woman is more important than the profit of men. That is unpatriotic. So, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Why would the crowd that had gathered join? Because they're all making their money from the same economy. And this is the culture that they consider normative. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Naked flogging in the middle of the city square. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so now Paul and Silas are incarcerated. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I've only been arrested for a good cause once uh, as part of a civil disobedience and a public protest. I, I've been, you know, in many protests where I was not arrested, but having only that one experience, I want to predict something to you or make a hunch that when Paul and Silas are awake in prison in the middle of the night and singing, it's not simply that it was like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, always look on the bright side of life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just, we're happy. Here's what I think it is. We have a message. It's a message of liberation for people. And you've locked us up, and you're trying to shut us up. And it's the middle of the night, and we're not going to be silent. We're going to keep singing praises to that most high God who has a better vision of what human beings should be living like than we're seeing here in this dirty Roman colony. And so we're going to keep singing praises to God, and you're not going to make us quiet. You have our hands and our feet in chains, chained, chained us to the wall, our voices are still going to sing. And so into the night they're singing. And then there was an earthquake, a violent earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. And he, you understand, he's thinking, if these prisoners escape, they're going to come after me and, and they're going to blame me for it. And I, I would rather die than have to be punished by the people above me in the Roman pyramid of power. I would rather die than what they're... I would rather die than get thrown into a dirty hellhole of a jail like the one that I manage. I think we can understand that. And Paul shouted... Don't harm yourself. We're all here. 
The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Same word as the slave girl used. What must I do, for those of you with theological background, to experience penal substitution and justification by grace through faith so that I may have my original sin and total depravity wiped away? You you understand? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. What must I do to be saved? Let me make a proposal. That word saved fits with that word Christ, which means liberating king. It fits with the identity of Jews, the people who believe that some people should not enslave other people, exploit them, abuse them. And so that word saved that derives its meaning in the Bible from the Exodus story of the Hebrew children being freed from slavery in Egypt, the word slaved means liberated. The slave girl says, these men are slaves of the Most High God. They're here to liberate all of us. And this guy says, I'm the jailer. I have the keys. You guys are the prisoners. And he says, but you guys are free. And I am so enslaved that I'm ready to kill myself out of fear of what this whole thing will do to me. And so... Paul says to him, believe in, Paul and Silas say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, interesting, not believe in Jesus Christ. This time it's Lord Jesus. I can't help but think that this is a bit of a play on the Roman Empire. Who's the leader of the Roman Empire? Lord Darth Vader. I'm, no, Lord Caesar. Lord Caesar. He says, Shift your confidence from Lord Caesar to Lord Jesus and you will be liberated and you and your whole household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him, all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. He goes from being their jailer to being their host. And he begins to heal the wounds inflicted by the Roman system. And and then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. If we had time, this is just worth picturing. He washes them, then they wash him. There's something beautiful going on there. The jailer brought them to his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Of, uh, out of the city. And uh, the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. <laughs> It's like, uh, tell those guys to leave now. 
no way, we're not leaving. We're going to occupy this jail until those, uh, until those magistrates come and face us themselves for the injustice they've done. And when the magistrates say, okay, please, we don't want any trouble here. Please just leave the city quietly. Paul says, yeah, we'll leave when we're good and ready. First, we want to go see our pal Lydia and hang out with the people there. And then when we're ready, we'll leave. It's just this amazing confrontation. It sounds like the kind of thing that happens in social movements where a new vision for how people can live starts spreading from town to town. I mean, today it spreads from town to town and from person to person and from tweet to post, to whatever, but news of a different way of living starts spreading. And I'd like to propose to you that when we think about a spiritual movement that Jesus started, it's this kind of liberating movement. And I'd like to propose to you that when you all come together each week, that you're like folks sneaking over to Lydia's house and saying, what's next in our agenda for liberation? Where can we join in the liberating work of lifting the dignity of people at the bottom who are seen as unimportant and rejected and exploited and scapegoated? What does it mean for us to have a vision of a world that is different from and better than this pyramidal economic system that always funnels wealth and power up to the top? My son-in-law just said to me yesterday, probably a lot of, some of you might be on Twitter and you know that Twitter has a new CEO. Do you remember those things, all those conversations when the internet was just beginning 20 plus years ago and they talked about how the internet will allow everything to be democratized and it ends up being owned by the richest man, richest men on earth. And you think, the movement that Jesus started and the movement that Paul participated in is, is still needed in our world today. And so I, I hope that gives you some little spark of vision of the importance of saying, we need some people to come together and have a vision of a better way of living with each other, living with the earth itself a vision of a whole social order. Jesus' word for it was the kingdom of God, the social order of God, the economy and ecology of God, and that we're invited to be part of it. However we do it, however we do it, our world needs people who have that vision and want to be part of that movement. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thanks for engaging with our weekly teaching. Before you go, we wanted to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. As DCC, we hope that you will find a community that encourages and challenges you in your faith. And one of our favorite ways to do this is through our community groups. These groups seek to grow closer to God, share life and friendship with each other, and care practically for their neighbors and their communities. We have a number of groups listed on our website. So whether you're looking for other parents with young kids, 
fellow young professionals, or want to engage with our new Falling Upward group to explore what it means to live out the second half of life, we have a group for you. And if you don't see the group you're looking for, we would love to equip and empower you to create that space and lead a group of your own. You can visit our website at denverchurch.org groups to get connected and find a group for you. To stay connected with everything that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email through our website, denverchurch.org, or download our DCC app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. Again, thank you for listening. We hope to be together again soon. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that together we might be a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.